Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. So, uh, has anyone ever tried uh, to read the prophets before? Anyone ever tried? Yeah. Uh, the key word here is, uh, is tried. Uh, because uh, if you have, what you will quickly learn is that the prophets are the hardest not just emotionally, spiritually, like in your face, but just the hardest literary uh, style to read in all the scriptures. It's just difficult. So what ends up happening is that people don't read them at all. Everybody last week like moaned and rolled their eyes. We have to learn about poetry. It's the Psalms. Mm. Okay, well, actually, if you read the Psalms, they're pretty simple and easy to read. Uh, You develop a palette for them. Like you'll start to like them, honestly. Uh, but the prophets, uh, well, first off, they use poetry too. And second off, probably the re- least read material in the Bible because it's just so difficult. But I believe not reading them has actually created some major truth deficiencies in us. You know what we need? We need like a weekly prophetic multivitamin, if you will, because the American church is missing out on some key nutrients. So people will often say thanks to me like, you know, preacher, you should just stick to what you know and stay out of politics. To which I immediately think, this person has clearly never read the prophets. Or they'll say, you know, the Bible doesn't care about social justice, it just cares about saving souls. To which I immediately think, this person has clearly never read the prophets. Or sometimes people will say, you know, you should stay away from the contentious stuff the controversial stuff. Just preach the positivity and hope, preacher. To which I immediately think, clearly this person has never read Isaiah 1 or the rest of the prophets. Because the prophets attack sin, they plead for the people to repent, they pronounce judgment, and they do always give a word of hope. Now this is why I chose the excerpts that I did from Isaiah chapter 1. Um, as our reading to open a sermon because Isaiah basically gives us three big themes. In Isaiah 1, we see them all that the prophets tend to focus on. Everything the prophets say, I believe can be thrown into these three buckets. All right, so for for note takers, this is what you wanna write down. Everything you read in Isaiah, the prophets falls in one of these three. And uh, to to be honest with you, I think that these are, are three of the truth deficiencies in the preaching of the church today. All right, one. You'll see the prophets call out sin. You're breaking God's law and it's not gonna end well, they'll say. So clean it up. You see it in verse 10. The Lord speaking through Isaiah says, listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom, you leaders of Gomorrah. Have you ever read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay, Isaiah's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah here, but he's using this story that would have been in their biblical subconscious to say something a little bit nasty to him, okay? This is who you remind me of. This is who you remind God of. 
He goes on, he says, I get no pleasure from your worship services or your sacrifices. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I ain't looking, I ain't listening. You know why? Because your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. So you need to do some social justice here. Learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of the orphans, fight for the rights of the widows. Now, already you see one of the major sins and I want to put it as number two because it's about this, probably the second most important one. You see one of the two major sins that the, prophet, uh, the prophets call out. That's injustice. Injustice is like the prophet's thermometer to see the community's relational health. They can base your relational health, they believe, based on how you treat the poor among you, how you treat the foreigner among you. That's how healthy your community will be. Second, and this is the more important sin that they call out over and over. A second, they really go after idolatry. And by idolatry, we're not just talking about like worshiping false gods, although that's a big deal. We're also talking about placing your trust in anything other than God. So like, for example, military alliances. You'll see this all throughout Isaiah. Isaiah gets frustrated, God gets frustrated because Israel trusts in other nations and their strength rather than God as their rock and their redeemer. I'm gonna tell you what, the prophets are unafraid to call this sort of stuff out. Second big bucket, they plea for repentance. Uh, what you see when you read the Old Testament is that God is actually incredibly patient. He is incredibly merciful. He waits and waits and waits and gives chances and chances and chances again. And in the prophets, all the way up till the last moment when they go into exile, they're still pleading with the people to repent. Say you're sorry, there's still time. God can forgive. Did you see it in Isaiah one? Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I'll make them like snow, white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I'll make them white as wool. Can you see the imagery here? Again, this is divine poetry, right? You gotta look at the imagery. Your life could either be a blood stain on the ground, red as scarlet, or your life could be like a blanket of snow on the landscape, white and pure. You choose though, you choose. Because if you will only just obey me, you will have plenty to eat. Third bit bucket is pronouncements of judgment and hope. Pronouncements of judgment and hope. Now, okay, spoiler alert for the Bible. Humans are not good at the whole repenting thing. Israel was not, you're not either. Don't roll your eyes, okay? Just be glad the Bible wasn't written about you, okay? Because there would be some stuff about the Americans in there. Okay, I'm just saying, right? Just be glad it's not written about us. They weren't good at repenting, neither are we. So that always ends in judgment. And yet, while judgment's pronounced, there's always, there's always this glimmer of hope. You're going down, but God will be faithful in the end. Check this out. Uh, they use a, Isaiah uses a, a smelting metaphor here where you burn down or like you heat up metal to where uh, it separates the impurities and gives you something more pure. Uh, so he says, I'll raise my fist against you. I will melt you down and uh, skim off your slag. I'll remove all your impurities. Then I'll give you good judges again, wise counselors. Jerusalem will be called the home of justice and the faithful city. So you see how this works? See how this works? Go to the previous slide here. This is reading tip number one for you. And the prophets are hard, so I'm telling you, write this down if you wanna be a better reader 
of the prophetic literature. You've got to learn to recognize these big themes as you read. Because everything that you read usually falls into one of these three big buckets. Now, even if you learn to recognize these big themes, then uh, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you, it's still gonna be hard. <laughs> it's still gonna be hard. Because there are other realities about the prophets that just make them difficult. Like uh, for one, they don't tell you much about any of the prophets who are writing them. There's just not a lot of biographical material in there. You have to go through with a fine tooth comb to just find like one fact, one detail or one story about their lives. This is the, the annoying part about the prophets in the Bible. Uh, the prophets who don't have books, like Elijah and Elisha, we get tons about them, all sorts of stories. But then the prophets who do have books, you know, Zephaniah, Joel, Isaiah, we just don't get all that much. Now, uh, check this out. I always wish somebody did this for me early on. They just sort of laid out a, t a prophet timeline to show me where, where they all fall in. So this will kind of help you understand the context in which they're all speaking. Uh, according to the Hebrew Bible, if you will, there are three major prophets and 12 minor prophets. The Hebrew Bible doesn't include Daniel and the prophets, for those of you who are wondering, right? There's Isaiah, Isaiah Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then there's the 12 minors. This, uh, this, by the way, mimics or is a type of the three patriarchs and the 12 tribes. It's collected on purpose. And as you can see, these prophetic ministries span several generations. And this is important to know because somebody speaking in the 700s is facing an entire different, entirely different historical situation than let's say somebody speaking in 520, like Haggai. We'll get to all that in a second, but uh, it's, it's helpful to, to see this, the time span. Back to our chart here. Uh, not only do they not give you much biographical information, but there aren't stories. If you read the prophets real quick, you're like, these aren't stories. This is like a collection of sermons, if you will, that can sometimes span several decades. So with Isaiah, it's not like Isaiah did a 10 week sermon series in the year 511 for you on this topic. And here it is. No, it's like you get, in Isaiah's case, his sermon span a couple centuries. Okay, so Isaiah's prophetic ministry begins about 740 with the, uh, the death of, of Uzziah. He ministers for uh, the length of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And as you'll see later, Ahaz and Hezekiah are the two kings that he interacts with uh, the most. Now, what can make uh, Isaiah's uh, ministry and his, his book so disorienting is that the first 39 chapters address what's happening while Isaiah is alive, his active ministry. By the way, what's happening while Isaiah is alive? Well, uh, the Northern kingdoms, the Northern 10 are getting wiped out by the Assyrians. So check this out. This is gonna help you a little bit, okay? Uh, there are 12 tribes in Israel, right? There were 10 in the North, two in the South. Originally under David, they were all 12 united together, but under Solomon uh, around what? Seven, nine, nine thirty-one. Around nine thirty-one, the kingdom split, and so you basically have two competing lines, two competing kingdoms. Right? Isaiah is speaking to the two southern kingdoms. Okay, so he's a southern kingdom prophet, but he's speaking to them about what's happening to the ten northern kingdoms. And again, what's happening? They're getting wiped out by the Assyrians for their disobedience. 
And Isaiah's saying, don't be a fool, Ahaz. Don't be a fool, Hezekiah. If it happened to them, it can happen to us too. Repent. We're no better than they are. Now, that's the first 39 chapters. Now, here's what's crazy. You hit chapter 40, and all of a sudden, this is what Isaiah does. Like time warp. I don't even know what a time warp sound is. Okay, whatever. You, like you get sucked into a time portal and you go straight to 586. And Isaiah doesn't tell you. He just takes you right there in chapter 40, you're boom, in 586. Or really possibly all the way in 538. And immediately the prophet starts speaking about the destruction that's happened now to Babylon just like the Assyrian, or by Babylon, just like the Assyrians, the Babylonians have come and now taken out the Southern kingdom. And eventually Cyrus and the Persians conquer Babylon and they send them home. And these last, you know, 40 to 66, what, 26 chapters here are all about the season of exile and their return home. Now, some of you may be wondering, how in the world did Isaiah write that if he was dead by like, the year 700. Well, there's several authorship theories on this. There's two main buckets that you can throw these authorship theories in. This is just fun side note, okay? Off the notes for a second. But the first, the first theory is that Isaiah literally had a prophetic vision uh, that went from 700 all the way to 530 and he saw all these things that would happen and he wrote them down. Uh, the other theory is that Isaiah had a group of disciples that he passed his sermons down to chapters one through 39. It actually tells us in Isaiah eight that he did have a group of disciples. He sealed up his sermons and he passed them on to them. Then when Isaiah dies, his prophecies were not popular. You know why your prophecies aren't popular when you're a prophet? Cause they're true. They're true, right? And he speaks the truth. So nobody liked him. But once things start coming true that he said, like in 586, 539, and, and like the Babylonians come in, all of a sudden everybody gets real interested in this guy Isaiah's writings again. So they go to his disciples and his disciples take the first 39 chapters and they apply them to the exilic situation in 40 through 66 under the inspiration of the spirit. You can choose whatever you want to, doesn't matter. The point still remains the same, right? Isaiah's prophecies span three different centuries, right? 700, 600s, and 500s, and he don't tell you when he's talking about what. So good luck. <laughs> Lastly, they aren't chronological. Uh, they're harmonic. So uh, the prophets are like artists. So what they do is it's, it's, it's orchestral. They build a chord for you. It's like boom, 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 boom. Right? That's how it works. There does. Uh, did you ever do the, the rain game whenever you're in school? Do you remember this? Okay, so let's do this real quick, okay? Just, just dignify yourselves for a second. Um, over, over here, I want you guys to do, this, do the rub. Do the, you just hear it, you hear the rain? Okay, okay, right here, I want you guys to do this little, yeah, leg pat. This is happening outside right now. I want you guys to do, over here, do the snaps. Okay, and balcony, give me a golf clap, just a golf clap balcony. And just enjoy the zen. Okay, now you stop. Thank you for, for going back to kindergarten for me. That's how the prophets build their arguments though. Like they start with these images in part one, but then you better remember those images and those metaphors and those things they say because they build on them in part two and build on them in part three and then draw them in in part four and it builds into this beautiful sort of melodious chord by the end of it. Last, their poetry. 
So refer to last week, okay? You thought you were getting away from poetry, you're not. Now, you know what this, this leads me to say? And this is reading tip number two. Reading tip number one is know the three buckets. Reading tip number two is this. You better get you a study Bible if you want to navigate the prophets. Because how confusing was it that I just said, like I'm up here and it took me 15 minutes to just, you know what I mean? Like it's, this, is, this is difficult stuff. This is my favorite study Bible. It's the NLT study Bible. Uh, Tyndale did it. Yep, anytime somebody asks me what Bible they should get, I tell them this. The NLT is a dynamic translation of the ancient languages into English, which means it's easy to understand. Um, but the scholarly material at the beginnings of the chapters and, and as you read uh, at the beginning of the books, especially, is just really, really helpful to help you understand what you're reading. Moral of the story, the prophets are hard to read though. You gotta put in the work. How y'all doing right now? Are we doing okay? Need to do a little stand and greet? You know, coffee's hot. They put the coffee up, coffee's up. You're in trouble. All right. Now, while the prophets are the hardest literary style to read, here's what I would say to you. Their message is very simple actually to understand. Very simple. See, the prophets were not primarily future tellers. Get that out of your head. Most people, when they think of a prophets, they think of like some crazy old guy with a crystal ball looking into the future. That is not what they primarily did. Some prophets do that sometimes, but that is the minority of what they actually preach. What prophets do most of the time is they talk about the covenant. They talk about God's law. They are covenant lawyers reminding the people of the law covenant that God had given the people a thousand years earlier in the wilderness with Moses. This is what they do. They speak for God about the covenant. Now y'all remember the covenant? Y'all remember that? We've talked about it every single week on purpose because this is essential to understand if you're gonna understand the story of the whole Bible. You remember all the stuff about the covenant? Let's briefly review because you're not shaking your heads. Um, These would go faster if you guys would just shake your heads about, okay, we can skip that part. Um, so everybody's shaking their heads now, okay, no. Uh, so G- Genesis one through two, God creates a good, good earth, right? And he puts us in charge. Genesis three, how do we do with being in charge? Bad. Really bad, right? Like there's this whole rebellion thinking we know good and evil better than him and then Cain's murdering Abel and then there's Noah's generation and then Noah kind of stinks too and then there's the Tower of Babel and it's just bad, right? So we get to Genesis 12 and we think, what's God going to do? Is he going to wipe the slate clean? Is he going to say, forget these humans? Is he going to try something different? And the answer to that is no, actually he doesn't. In Genesis chapter 12, he goes to Abraham, this sort of random pagan, uh, and he makes Abraham a covenant or a promise. He says, Abraham, through your family, these are approximations by the way, but this is a pretty close. Through your family, I'm going to bring blessing to all the nations. And the rest of the Bible builds off this covenant promise that he makes to the family of Abraham. In fact, if you follow the story of Genesis, it zooms in on Abraham's family, right? It goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, who takes us to Egyptian royalty on top of the world. And then a few generations later, we find ourselves in Egyptian slavery, By the time we get to the beginning of Exodus and Exodus 2, the people of God are crying out from slavery, asking God for help and God hears their cries. And so he sets apart a prophet, Moses, a leader. And Moses comes and he leads a slave revolution and they get out of Egypt and they get in the wilderness. And guess what God does with Moses? He updates the covenant with law. He makes a law covenant. This law covenant has over 600 laws in it. 
with 10 really, really important ones, right? And Deuteronomy 28 through 30 summarizes the thrust of the covenant. Covenant update number one. You can go read this for yourself later, but he says, when you go in the promised land, follow the law. It's so simple to understand. If you obey it, Israel, then I'm gonna bring blessing in life through you. That looks kind of like global leadership. The nations will admire you. They'll be drawn to your light. But if you disobey, then that's going to bring punishment and death, which looks like what you just experienced in Egypt. Global enslavement, the nations are gonna rule you. Now understand, this is what the prophets are talking about. They're just reminding Israel of this covenant right here. Obedience gets this, disobedience gets that. All right, come on y'all, use your brain. Now here's the deal, Moses uh, actually is smart because he makes a little prediction, right? If you go read Deuteronomy 28 for 30, he's like, okay, here's what obedience gets, here's what disobedience gets. And I've spent 40 years in the wilderness with y'all, so I'm gonna go ahead and make a prediction of how this is gonna go. You're gonna choose the disobedience path. You whine a lot, you've annoyed the heck out of me, I'm about to hit a rock, I'm not even gonna get to the promised land, all right? So y'all going back to slavery. But he gives them a promise. I got good news. God will still, even after that, bring blessing through you to the world eventually. And this is the key. This is all the prophets wanna talk about. Right here. Now, if you remember, we've got four major stages of the covenant. We talked about David's stage a couple weeks ago, right? If you fast forward from the time of Moses, Moses' prediction was right. First, we have uh, the book of Judges where there's a federation of tribes. And how do the tribes do in terms of obeying God's law? Not good, okay? I still don't know how we're gonna study Judges in here. Like, it's just like, I don't know if I can say that when like we could ever look at each other normal ever again. Anyway, so it's, it's some stuff in Judges, right? It goes down and it is bad. So then they try a monarchy on for size. And the monarchy goes not so well either. They basically have one good king. His name is David. And God re-updates the promise, the covenant with David. Remember what he says to David? He says, David, it's through your line. I'm gonna bring forth a great king, a forever king that's gonna bring all this blessing. He's gonna fulfill the law. He's gonna bring blessings to the world. And that's where we find ourselves with the prophets. It's interesting. Uh, David start. he has a son, Solomon. And immediately there's an evaluation on Solomon. Is this gonna be the great son? And first and second Kings tells us, nope. He asked for wisdom, but he made some real boneheaded decisions. And then one king after the other, we see, is this the great son? Nope, is this the great son? Nope, is he gonna obey? Nope, disobey? Yes. And what's the penalty for disobedience? What's the penalty? Yes, yes, it's punishment and death, right? It's global enslavement. And so guess what happens? In the year 722 BC and 586 BC, the Assyrians take out the 10 tribes in the north and the Babylonians eventually take out the two tribes in the south and they go into enslavement. Here's your timeline. Exile number one of the north Exile number two of the South. This is eventually when the, the South is allowed to go back and not too many of them go back for the record when they're allowed to, but they do. Again, this is so important to recognize y'all, so important. This is the context in which the prophets minister before exile, after exile, and on the way back from exile. 
All right, any questions? Good. Let's talk about Isaiah. With all that in mind about the prophets, I just want to look a little closer to him because we do get a little bit of a biographical stuff about him. Did Jason read Isaiah 6 at the beginning of service? He did last service. Did he do that one again? Yeah, okay. So Isaiah 6 is one of those little bio, bio stories that we get from Isaiah. So we get to find out how exactly Isaiah became a prophet. Do you ever wonder how you, how do you, be, how do I become a prophet? I, me, I want to become one. Well, okay. Isaiah tells you how in Isaiah 6. You get this whole prophetic calling story. And here's what it, uh, it kind of uh, orbits around. There's this supernatural calling that he has through a radical experience of God. And it is not a comfortable experience as you heard, if you heard Isaiah 6. Now I'm not gonna read it all to you, but I am gonna summarize it for you, all right? If I, okay, if I had to summarize th- this experience in two words, I would, I would use the word uh, afraid. Because when Isaiah is summoned up into the throne room of God and he, he gets in God's presence and there's these angelic creatures and the robe is filling the temple and it's shaking and there's smoke everywhere and he feels the burning, searing holiness of God, he's very afraid. And uh, I would use the word ashamed. He actually feels like I don't belong here in the presence of this holy God. I don't belong. I'm doomed. Get me out of here before I die. Have you ever been in a, a room where you don't belong before, by the way? Like where you're just like, these people are smarter than me. These people are out of my league. They're just better than me. Okay, so this is what this would be like. This would be like uh, Steph Curry calling you up today and saying, look, we got a few players down. We're gonna need you to step in versus the Lakers for the rest of this series, all right? And you're like, heck yeah, Steph, I got this. In high school, I could touch rim, right? And you're like, feeling good, right? So you go check in. Uh, and and you're, 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 at, you're at the game and all of a sudden the crowd's roaring and all of a sudden the jump ball goes up and it's tipped to you and AD steps forward, all seven foot tall, unibrow, like, and he's, he's like, I'm gonna guard him, right? And immediately you, you realize, you're like, I'm doomed, Steph, we're doomed. I do not, but all those stories you told yourself about your basketball glory in high school, I dropped 15 once in a JV game. You know, Jared Polson played in my conference. Wow, OJ Mayo, whatever, right? Like this, I've heard the stories, right? All that goes out the window when you're faced with the reality that I'm in the big leagues and these are some of the best players ever. Sub me out, you'll be better with four. <laughs> this is how Isaiah feels, except uh, eternally, you know, more terrified and ashamed, right? Where are we even at on the notes, okay? What am I talking about? Okay, now, back to, okay, this, this is, so he has, a, he has a radical experience, all right? Uh, here's the next thing you need to know about it, all right? Uh, do you think being a prophet was fun? He gets this prophetic calling, and everybody likes to be prophetic today, you know, like, I'm, I'm prophetic, which basically just means I say mean stuff on the internet that I'm afraid to say to people to their face, right? I'm gonna be prophetic, I've, a prophetic word for people. But I'll go ahead and tell you right now, if you actually got a prophetic calling, you would not like it. Jeremiah calls it a burning in his belly and it's not a good burning. It hurts. It's burning him up. He's got to get it out. Isaiah's calling was not fun either because God actually tells him in Isaiah 6, he's going to be rejected. Check this out. Okay, after Isaiah comes into the throne room and feels like he's going to die, God then tells him what his ministry is going to be like. He said, yes, I want you to go say, to the, say this to the people. This is divine poetry, so there's sarcasm here, but, but watch this. He goes, go say this to the people. Listen carefully, but do not understand. 
Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people. Plug their ears and shut their eyes. Can you hear the sarcasm? Like that way they'll not see with their eyes. They'll not hear with their ears, not understand with their hearts and turn to me for healing. And Isaiah asks what any of us would. That sounds fun. How long do I have to do this? And God replies, until their towns are empty, their houses are deserted and the whole country's a wasteland. That's how long. Oh, great, God, thanks, right, get right to it. Now, what's interesting here, especially about this first uh, page here of the, of the, of the calling, is that um, we get divine poetry. This is sarcasm. The ancient Hebrew scholars will tell you it reads like sarcasm in the text. Um, but, what, but what we get here is God describes Isaiah's calling, not in terms of the content of his message, but the effect of his message. You see it? You're gonna go say what I want you to say, but it's gonna be like talking to that wall over there. Oh, they're gonna listen and they ain't gonna hear nothing. That's what it's gonna be like. Did any of you have children like that? Okay, so you can identify, right? Like this is, this is how it is. That's the effect of it. And how long do you gotta do it until they end up in a wasteland? How would you like that as the vision of your life? You want to be prophetic. Most, most of the prophets uh, are truth speakers. And so their entire lives, they are rejected. They aren't listened to. They're persecuted. Look at John the Baptist and Jesus. They're two New Testament prophetics, if you will, that didn't go well for either of them, did it? Like that's, it's just not, it's not a, it's not a fun calling. Most of the time prophets don't get the attention that they deserve until after they die. Because after they die, all of a sudden people are like, oh, well, some of the stuff they said is coming true. Oh, well, the, all the stuff they said is coming true. We, we should have paid attention to this guy, right? But then it's too late. In some ways today, prophets are like comedians. That's a good modern day comparison. They're social critics, if you will. Comedians stand on stage and they attack social ills. That's what they do. They're not future tellers, uh, but they use the art form of comedy to make us see all the stupidity and incongruencies in our lives. I actually believe it's one of the few entertainment industries that, uh, that to this day haven't been sanitized or censored or disciplined into political propaganda. You can still hear from comedians them going after the inconsistencies in our country. Now, since the prophets are constantly ignored, this is the last thing you need to know, especially about Isaiah. Um, they gotta do crazy stuff to get people's attention. So uh, God, God tells them to do all sorts of wild things. John the Baptist lives out in the wilderness, eats bugs and honey, right? Kind of weird, all right? Ezekiel, one time he builds a little like play set of the city in the middle of the city and then tears it down just to show them what's gonna happen. Isaiah, oh, what, what does Isaiah get to do? Um, Isaiah gets a very special calling. Check this out. The Lord said to Isaiah, son of Amos, take off the burlap you have been wearing and remove your sandals, AKA get naked. And Isaiah did as he was told and walked around naked and barefoot just to be clear, it wasn't naked with socks on or naked with shoes on, but naked and barefoot. And then the Lord said, my servant Isaiah has been doing this for how long? 
oh, some of y'all said, oh, like one day, three years. If you do it one day, you might as well go three years. I'm just saying, everybody's seen it. So three years, Whoop. three years, man. He don't even wanna be on the screen. There you go. The whole point of it was uh, uh, Israel had placed their trust in Egypt. God didn't like that. He wanted them to trust him. And so he's like, Egypt will be drug away naked just like you all will. All right, understand, trust me. This is the sort of insane stuff that, that the prophets get called to. So can I just do a quick personal rant here and then we're gonna outline Isaiah and, and call it, okay? Um, to the modern day prophets out there, prophetic types, this is just my opinion, and you all now know a lot about the prophets, so tell me where I'm wrong here, okay? I would just say to people who, who think they have the prophetic gift, I hear that a lot, be very careful. To the people out there who like to say things like, well, the Lord said to me, be very careful using that language. You got guys on TV with big stages doing it. You've got leaders of Christian organizations doing it in order to manipulate staff. You've got preachers on stage doing it. You might have people in your small group doing it. I don't know. Just be very careful. See, when you look at the Bible, there were not lots of prophets. So there won't be lots of prophets today. And I don't see any prophets glorying in the fact that they're a prophet. Uh, when people start you know, playing the God told me to tell you card to me, um, I always, like this is just the snarky side of me, but I always just think to myself, oh, you're a prophet. Hmm. So did you have a radical and terrifying experience of God that made you think you wanted to die? Oh, no, you didn't. Well, are you gonna speak to me in divine poetry now? Oh, you've never read a poem. Hmm. So are you just gonna tell me like all the things that are already in the promises and plans of God? Because that's what the prophets do. Oh, not you have a vision, I get it, oh. So you're not a prophet then, got it. I'm just sensitive to this. I'm just sensitive to this because I see charismatic leaders do things like say, like the Lord said to me in order to manipulate others, usually those less mature in the faith. And, uh, and it can lead to incredible unhealth. Prophecy is not a hunch. Prophecy is not a strong feeling. It's not an educated guess. It's not even sanctified wisdom. That's the difference between prophecy and teaching, okay? Prophecy is a human report of the voice of God. And be careful, prophetic types, because you know what happens to false prophets. If one of your prophecies doesn't come true, you know what the Old Testament says we're supposed to do with you after church today? Wouldn't that be an interesting thing to do after church? I would never do it, okay? So you're safe here, prophets, but capital punishment is the prescription. So God told me, careful. All right, now, all this uh, having been said, uh, I wanna briefly outline uh, Isaiah for you. And when I say brief, we're gonna move so fast, okay? So, so hold on tight, all right? But I do wanna outline the book for you briefly so that when you go home later, you have at least some handles to kind of plug stuff into. There are two competing plans, remember, in Isaiah's prophetic scroll, right? There is the short-term judgment that Isaiah preaches here, and then there is the long-term restoration plan that pops up here when they get back from exile. Short-term judgment, long-term restoration, those are our two big parts. Now, by the time Isaiah walks onto the scene of Scripture, remember, again, uh, it's been what? 200 years since the kingdoms have split, right? And one of the disorienting things about Isaiah's prophetic ministry is that he's talking to the south about what's happening to the north. 
Back to our previous slide here. There are four kings, two of which he spends a lot of time talking to. And I would say that the first 12 chapters, first 12 chapters in part one here, these first 39, so that we call this 1A, right? Are addressed to the context of King Ahaz's rule and reign. Now, King Ahaz, he's in the line of King David. Is he the great son of David? How do you think Isaiah scored Ahaz? Anybody? F, F minus. Ahaz is idolatrous and all the stuff that we just read from Isaiah one, that was Ahaz's time, okay? He's not the champion. He's not smarter than a fifth grader, all right? He's, he's, he's in trouble. F, one of the best illustrations of Ahaz's unfaithfulness is actually Isaiah chapter seven. In Isaiah seven, um, Ahaz is about to get in a fight with two of his neighbors, the Northern kingdom and the Syrians. And he's feeling really, really scared about it. So he's like, I need a friend or else Jerusalem's not gonna help. So guess who he calls? No, he doesn't call God. He calls his friend, the Assyrians the world superpower. And when I, Isaiah hears this, he's like, oh no. So he goes over and he says, Ahaz, that's a bad decision. Just trust in God and he'll take care of you. And you know what Ahaz does? Ahaz says, nope. So Isaiah's like, okay, here, here's the deal. God will give you any sign you want. He gives him a blank check. Literally, Isaiah says, God will give you any sign you want if you'll just trust in him. Name your sign. You want a hundred nuggets from Chick-fil-A on a Sunday? Want Cincinnati Reds to win a World Series? All things are possible with God, you know? Just name it, right? And Ahaz, this just shows you his heart. He says, no, thank you. He doesn't even take the sign. Like I'd at least experimented, right? He doesn't even take the sign though. He says, I'm gonna go with the Assyrians. So F, Ahaz gets an F minus Ahaz. Judgment's gonna fall. But even in these first 12 chapters with Ahaz's resistance, we see in Isaiah 11, there's still a word of hope. Isaiah says, don't worry though, out of the stump of David's family. Ahaz, the tree's about to get cut down, he says. It's a judgment metaphor, but out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding of counsel and might of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Does that sound like anybody you know? Next part of chapter one through 39, part B, is when Isaiah pronounces judgment on the other nations. The, the nations have an interesting relationship with God in Isaiah because God actually uses the nations as an instrument of judgment against his people. So his people are kind of like, well, that ain't fair. Like you're using them and they got all the power and God, you like them more than us? Cause it, like we're bad, but they're worse, right? So through this middle section here at the beginning, God makes really, really clear, oh, no, 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 no. The nations are gonna come under judgment too. I'm just using them as an instrument. Y'all are all sinners. In fact, it's like you read this section, he just goes through one nation after the other. He's like, Babylon's gonna get theirs, Assyria gonna get yours, the Philistines, Moab, Damascus, many other nations, Sudan, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem, Tyre. He's, he's even like, in case I missed anybody, let me just do one on the whole earth. Everybody's gonna get it, right? Everybody. And yet, even in this judgment against the nations, there's hope for the nations and his judgment against the whole earth. This is, this is what you find in there. It's like this, this glimmer of hope. He says, but all who are left afterwards, all who are left, shout and sing for joy. Those in the West praise the Lord's majesty. In Eastern lands, they give glory to the Lord. In the lands beyond the sea, they praise the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. We hear songs of praise from the ends of the earth, songs that give glory to the righteous one. 
Any idea who he is? Part C, to end part one here, is when we get uh, Hezekiah's bit. Now, Hezekiah, uh, all right, so anybody want to, he's, he's in the line of David. Anybody want to guess? Is this the great son of David? Did Hezekiah do it? What did Isaiah give him as his grade? He didn't get an F, but he gets like a D minus. D, D, he's a little better than Ahaz, but D, you still fail, right? Ds do not get degrees, fail. Now, here's, here's why, here's why. Because again, Hezekiah has this distrusting, idolatrous relationship with the nations. We get to see this in two scenes. Okay, the first scene is when the Assyrians come knocking on his door. After the Assyrians wipe out the 10 Northern tribes, guess where they turn their gaze? South. And they come up and they're about to knock on the door of Jerusalem and take the walls down and take them out too. And so guess who Hezekiah turns to? His trusty friend, God, no, not God, Egypt. Calls up Egypt. He's like, Egypt, y'all next if you don't help us. And Isaiah goes, why can't y'all learn? So he comes, he spits, uh, you know, to Hezekiah. He's like, you gotta, you gotta change. You gotta slow your roll here, man. Turn to God. And so, you know what Isaiah does? Isaiah has this, or excuse me, Hezekiah. Hezekiah has this moment of clarity where he just hits his knees and he prays and he asks God for help. And guess what happens? God in his patience and mercy gives him a miracle. History cannot explain this, by the way. It is a historical fact that Assyria swept the eastern side of the Mediterranean rim and stopped at Jerusalem and turned around and went home. And they can't explain why. Herodotus, uh, a Greek historian that came about a generation later, he said that the reason why was because in the night, a bunch of mice, an army of mice, went into the Assyrian camp and ate their bowstrings. Mice don't eat bowstrings, spoiler alert, just in case you didn't know, right? Unless, of course, some sort of miracle's going on. So here's what Isaiah says to explain it. It says, that night, the angel of the Lord went out because of Hezekiah's repentance, went into the Assyrian camp, be killed 185,000 Syrian soldiers. And when they woke up the next morning and found corpses everywhere, Sennacherib and company put their tail between their legs, they went home to Nineveh because something's happening here. You see? Now, apparently, Hezekiah's memory is short-lived, though. Even the good kings aren't that good, kids, remember. So in chapter 39, two chapters later, we see another political alliance. He's in Jerusalem, and he's giving Babylon, the Babylonian regiment, a tour. Again, this is in the late 600s. He shows them all the treasures of Jerusalem. He shows them the treasures of the temple. It's very clear in the text that Hezekiah is making a political alliance with them, or at least trying to. And Isaiah goes, he goes and walks over there. He's like, Hezekiah, you messing up, man. And I'll tell you, this nation that you just showed all the treasures to, guess what? They're coming back sooner or later and they're gonna take all those treasures with them. Isaiah 39, that's how this section ends, right? Which brings us to Isaiah 40 where Boom, here's Hezekiah's reign. So like, here's, here's where we are. You just got time warped, right? And you just get time warped down there. In Isaiah 40, we get to, to part two. And part two opens up 538 BC in the middle of exile. The Babylonians have came. The city lies in ruins. The temple's been torn down. There's smoldering rubble. And we hear a message of hope. Comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. The Lord has punished her twice over now for all of her sins. The punishment is over though. It's part two of the story. 
And then we get to see the long-term restoration plan. Now, again, this is just too much to be able to, I mean, so much rich material, too much to be able to cover, but let me just fly through this quickly. In chapter 40, we see a word of comfort. Israel's released. They get to go home from exile and God calls them to be his servants. And Isaiah hopes that they will after experiencing both God's judgment and justice, but also God's mercy and restoration. He hopes that the people will come and be a blessing to the world like he hoped and wanted. But quickly we see in 41 through 47 that they won't. They're the same people. People are just so people-y, right? So they doubt and they accuse God for exile. The whole scene is like God on trial and them saying, why'd you send us there, God? So in chapter 48, God rejects them as his servants. And then in 49 through 55, some of the best chapters in all the Bible, God commissions a capital S, servant, to fulfill Israel's mission for them. This is where you get passages like Isaiah 53 that says he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, but by his wounds, the suffering servant's wounds, we will be healed. This servant will not restore the glory of Israel or bless the nations by conquest, military power or might. He'll do it by suffering, by being an atonement for him. That's these chapters. And when he does, the people will inherit God's kingdom in full because of the work of the servant. Now, do I even need to make the Jesus connection for you? Come on. There's a reason why theologians call Isaiah the fifth gospel, the prince of the prophets, because Jesus is the suffering servant. Jesus is Emmanuel, as Isaiah says. He's the royal child born to us. He's the royal son given to us. The government rests on Jesus' shoulders. The increase of Jesus' government and peace will have no end. He is the stem. He is the branch. He is the root of David that will bear fruit. He is the suffering servant, the anointed one who preaches the gospel and the source of new creation and new life. And we see this fulfilled in him over and over throughout the New Testament. So look, I could read you these passages prophets didn't know his name but God did and now we do his name is Jesus he's the solution he's the only solution every empire has failed every man and woman has sinned every civilization has gone astray the Israelites were unable to bring the blessing so one faithful Israelite was born unto us and I would ask you do you find yourself in exile today do you find yourself in slavery, slavery of sin, in pain, facing consequences for your own decisions, reaping what you sowed? I've got gospel good news. Written into Genesis was the promise of a blessed one who would bring blessing to a sinful humanity. Written into the histories of Samuel is the promise of an unrivaled king who would bring an unrivaled kingdom. And written into the sermons of the prophets was the promise of a suffering servant who would suffer our punishment and then serve up shalom. Praise God. And God was faithful to the promise and he's still faithful today. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So let us meditate on that for just a moment as you pull your communion out. Maybe let your eyes and your mind and your heart rest on just one of these little bullets up here. And then we're gonna partake of communion together in light of our suffering servant.